Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 21, Judges chapter 14. Our discussion last week <clears throat> centered on the meteoric and volatile Samson from the book of Judges chapter 13, and we examined his God announced miraculous birth by a mysterious manifestation of God termed the angel of the Lord. And his birth was going to come from the long void womb of his aged mother. And we discussed his status as a Nazarite that actually began while he was still in and part of his mother's body. He would retain that Nazir status all of his life even if he didn't maintain all of its requirements. Now, Samson was of the tribe of Dan, whose allotted territory, which you see up here on the map, was unfortunately located adjacent to the coastal region that was dominated by the powerful Philistines, who also known as the Sea Peoples. Now, Samson was part of only a small remnant of Danites who had elected to remain in, in central Canaan as the bulk of their tribe migrated well north, off this map that you've got up here actually, to the north, up to the Lebanon border area. And there they reestablished themselves. Now, the Philistines had, just, had proved just to be too formidable for the tribe of Dan to carry out God's instructions to drive them out of the peace of the promised land for which they had been given responsibility. So now the descendants of Dan lived either way up north or in small enclaves dotted around the other Israelite tribal territories. Judah, particularly the, the northernmost part of Judah, being one of the primary locations because it was nearest to their assigned territory. Now, let me remind you that it was Samson's God-ordained purpose to begin to address the oppression, or better, I think, strong influence of the Philistines and their pagan culture upon the local Israelites. Samson would not, and it wasn't his assignment, to fully deliver Israel from their enemy. Only to begin that process by stirring up trouble between the Philistines and the Israelites who had constructed this peaceful coexistence that was precisely against anything that the Lord wanted for His people. Now let me also remind you that this was but a continuation of the Holy War begun by Joshua. Samson's actions were, in a sense, God-sanctioned. Now, while Shimshon, Samson's, motives and methods were often questionable, some of them downright criminal, the Lord influenced him. And at certain critical moments, he anointed Samson with supernatural strength. Now, those critical moments 
often came after Samson went astray from Hebrew cultural norms, from the law of Moses, in such a way that his actions precipitated some crisis or another. So Samson and his relationship with God and the manner that Jehovah worked through Samson is quite unique among the judges and not something, I think, that we ought to ever seek for ourselves. So let's read Judges chapter 14 to start things off today. Judges chapter 14 in your complete Jewish Bible is page 287. Shimshon went down to Timnah, and in Timnah he saw a woman who was one of the Pilishtim, the Philistines. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the Pilishtim. Now, get her for me to be my wife. And his father and mother replied, Isn't there any woman from the daughters of your kinsmen or among all my people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to find a wife? And Shimshon said to his father, Get her for me, I like her. His father and mother didn't know that all had this had come from Adonai, who was seeking grounds for a quarrel with the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines were ruling Israel. Shimshon went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and when they came to the vineyards of Timnah, a young lion roared at him. And the spirit of Adonai came powerfully upon Shimshon, and bare-handed he tore the lion into pieces as easily as if it had been a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or mother what he'd done. Then he went down and talked with the woman and found that he still liked her. And after a while, as he was returning to claim his bride, he turned aside to look at the carcass of that lion and saw that there was now a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped the honey out into his hands and went on eating it as he went. And when he came to his father and mother, he gave them some, and they ate too. But he didn't tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of a lion. His father went down to the woman, and there Shimshon gave a banquet. This is what the young men used to do. And when the Philistines saw him, they provided 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me present you with a riddle. And if you can solve it within the seven days of the banquet and tell me the solution, I will give you 30 linen shirts and 30 changes of good clothes. But if you can't solve it, you give me 30 linen shirts and 30 changes of good clothes. And they answered, tell us the riddle. We want to hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came food and out of the strong came sweetness. Well, three days passed. They couldn't solve the riddle. And on the seventh day, they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into telling us the solution to the riddle, otherwise we'll burn down your father's house and you with it. You called us here to turn us into paupers, didn't you? Samson's wife went to him in tears and said, You don't love me. You hate me. You told a riddle to my fellow countrymen and you haven't even told me the answer. And he said to her, look, I haven't even told it to my mother and father. Should I tell you? But she had been crying throughout the seven days of the banquet. So on the seventh day, because she had kept pressing him, he told her the solution. And she passed it on to her people. 
Then before sundown on the seventh day, the men of the city said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? And Samson answered, If you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you wouldn't have solved my riddle now. Then the spirit of Adonai came over him powerfully and he went down to Ashkelon. He killed 30 of their men, took their good clothes, gave them to the men who had solved the riddle. He was boiling with rage. So he went straight up to his father's house and his wife was given to the companion who had been best man at the wedding. Interesting story. Samson was about 18 or 19 years old when the Spirit of God came upon him for the first recorded time, which is in the last verse or two of chapter 13. So he was about 20 as we enter chapter 14 and when he spies this Philistine girl he'd like for a wife. And verse 1 explains that he went down to Timnah. Samson's home was in Sorah, in Judah, right, and, which was around an elevation of around 800 feet. Timnah was a Philistine city, and it was located in the area the Philistines preferred, this coastal plain um, of Canaan, sometimes called the Shefla. Now, I've been taken to task occasionally for calling the area where the 12 tribes, this whole area, where the 12 tribes now lived, had lived for the last three centuries as Canaan. Not calling it Israel. But historically what I'm telling you is accurate. Okay. Israel was a named nation only in the sense that it consisted of a people group that stemmed from a common ancestor, Jacob. They were not a country at this time. Okay. They were fairly well united during Joshua's day as they accepted a common leader and a common priesthood while Joshua lived, but quickly after his death they reverted to a much more typical tribal society in which, which each tribe was its own entity and the only other allegiance each tribe really held was to whatever treaty-based relationships they had formed. There was no sovereign nation of Israel with a central government and it's that eventual formation of a central government that is the historical marker that actually ends the era of the judges and begins the era of the kings. The formation of the central government led by a king is also when Israel was finally called Israel. Bottom line, during the era of the Shoftim, the judges, there were 12 Hebrew tribes plus the Levites who inhabited the land of Canaan, but in no way was this place at that time called Israel. It was called Canaan. Now Samson was in Timnah one day for some unknown purpose, but it may well have been because one of his friends had told him about this beautiful unmarried girl down there. When a Philistine, this Philistine girl, catches his eye and he instantly fell in lust with her. That Samson saw a woman, it says, saw a woman, means more than to notice her existence. 
It means he saw her unveiled face. Meaning from a typical Middle Eastern cultural norm that this was a rather immodest girl. He went to his parents and he asked them to get her for him. That may sound a little bit strange, but what this is talking about is the usual custom of parents negotiating the marriage for their children. Well, Shimshon's parents were horrified. I mean, Samson was a Nazarite. He was set apart for God when he was still an embryo. And a Nazarite was expected to be especially observant of the Torah. For him to want a Philistine girl, and a modest one at that, had to take their breath away. For one thing, this was against the Hebrew law. Naturally, his parents want to know why he can't pick a woman from among their own people. Samson's rash and disrespectful reply is, just go get her, I want her. Most versions say that he said, get her, she pleases me well. Actually, what it literally says is, get her, she is right in my sight. What a contrast. And what a revelation of Samson's underlying character contained in that little abrupt answer. The contrast is, that each time a new judge cycle begins, we have the Lord saying, Israel was evil in my sight. Now here is Samson saying that in his sight, this pagan girl is the right choice for him. Samson is declaring that his judgment is beyond reproach, almost like Jehovah's. And if something is right in his sight, if it's good to his mind, then there's no point in discussing the matter further. But we're given an important piece of information in verse 4. That Samson's parents' shock came mainly from knowing that this, rather they're not knowing that this, this impulse actually came from Adonai, from God, who was seeking grounds for a quarrel. Now there's a lot of disagreement among commentators, as to whether it was Samson or the Lord who was the one who was seeking the means to start a quarrel. I don't think it really matters all that much. After all, we're told in no uncertain terms that this impulse in Samson to want this attractive heathen female as a wife came from God. So either way, Samson was just following through with with what was divinely destined to be. God had arranged this connection. And he was going to use this situation to move against his enemy, the Philistines. Now, this is a side of God that most theologians and a lot of modern Christians would like to believe is gone. This side where justice has been totally replaced by love and mercy. The side where the sin of a believer, no matter how egregious, brings no consequence. The side of God where obedience is a thing of the past and all we have to do is feel a sense of love towards him and one another. Here in Georgia's we have the, uh, Judges, we have the Lord picking a fight with someone who's not looking for one. And Samson is his surrogate. 
The Lord doesn't like the peace and calm between His people and the Philistines. Why not? Because the Philistines don't belong there. They don't belong in Canaan. The Father gave direct instructions to Moses and Joshua to drive out or destroy all who oppose Him from Canaan. But instead, his people decided they'd rather switch than fight. Now hear this, because I've heard this instruction that comes from God absolutely twisted in the mouths of lay people, pastors, and those who are antagonistic to the church. The only place this hawkish instruction about driving out or killing all those people was concerned Canaan and only Canaan because of all the places on earth this was the place that God had set aside for himself and his people Israel was to defend itself against foreigners those living outside of Canaan but they were to try to make peace with them if at all possible there was no worldwide crusade or genocide decreed in God's instructions So, brethren, we have no reason to be cringing or apologizing for our God's decision about that situation. None at all. Samson's parents caved in to his demands. And so the three of them journeyed to Timnah so marriage arrangements could be made. And on the outskirts of the Philistine village, there was a vineyard where he and his parents separated. Going through the vineyard would have been the most direct route to Timnah, but since Shimshon was a Nasir, a Nazarite, he had to avoid contact with grapes. Thus he took the long way around. Suddenly Samson stumbled upon a lion. The startled lion roared a threatening roar at him, and Samson leaped into action. The Lord was going to use this situation for his purposes. So we find in verse 6 that the Ruach of Yehovah, the Spirit of God, came upon Samson, imbued him with uh, supernatural strength and courage, and with bare hands, meaning no weapons at all, Samson literally tore the lion apart and killed it. Let's stop there for a second. Who can imagine fighting a lion under any circumstances, let alone without any kind of a weapon? But let's also not make this more than it is. The Hebrew word used here for lion is kefir. Kefir. It's interesting. There are five Hebrew words for lion. And they're not synonymous. Each Hebrew word for lion sets up a hierarchy of the lion's age of maturity. So we have the Hebrew word gur, G-U-R, gur, that means a baby lion, little small cub. And at the other end of the scale is the most mature lion called a leish. In between a gur and a leish are three other Hebrew words denoting middle stages of development. Kefir is the second youngest. So what Samson fought 
was a mature cub, but it was not a young, even a young adult lion. So the typical illustrations of this enormous male lion with the flowing mane is a little over the top. Now since Samson went a different route than his parents, mom and dad didn't know about this little adventure with the lion. And Samson, for some reason, didn't bring it up. Of course, this is of itself going to play quite a role in what comes a little bit later. Well, when they arrived in Timnah, all three of them went to the family home of this unnamed Philistine girl and Samson took some time to talk with her. Now, up to now, he had apparently only been struck by her lovely appearance and at this point, after getting to know her a little bit, he also became pleased with her countenance. Thus, it says he still liked her. Well, the next verse skips ahead quite a bit. Some amount of time passes. Samson's parents had apparently met with their Philistine counterparts and marriage terms were agreed to and the betrothal period began. Now how long this is we don't know because undoubtedly it was some compromise between whatever the current Hebrew customs and the Philistines ways were at that time. So verse 8 has Samson returning to Timnah to claim his bride. And again, his parents took a little different route as they approached the vineyard on the outskirts of Timnah. And along the way, he of course remembered about that lion. And he went over to the same spot to see if the remains of it were were still there. And sure enough, there they were. And the complete Jewish Bible says that what he found was a lion carcass. That's pretty, pretty accurate. The thing we have to keep in mind is this was not a sun-bleached lion skeleton lying there. Rather, it was more like a mummy. Okay? It was summer in Canaan, hot and dry. And when, at that time of year, an animal died, it was quite usual for scavengers to do their jobs to empty it of its internal organs, but at the same time, the sun and lack of humidity had this effect of rapidly dehydrating the remaining skin and flesh, kind of in the same way meat or fish destined for food was commonly flayed and laid open to the sun, and it would become dry and and preserved for later use. It was inside the cavity of this kind of semi-mummified lion where skin was still stretched over the skeleton, that a colony of bees had established a hive. Now, honey was a prized food. There wasn't a great deal of it. Bees weren't cultivated in hive farms like they are now. And it offered a wonderful and a rare flavor, and so Samson was quick to take advantage of it. He scraped out of the carcass as much as he could with his hands. He ate some of it, then later offered some of it to his folks when he met up with them again. Now we're told that he withheld that little matter of where he got it from inside the dried up remains of a lion. Well, a lion, you see, is an unclean animal. Worse, it was a dead unclean animal. So while Samson didn't seem to be bothered too much by the prospect of either contact with this ritually impure object nor eating food taken from it, His parents would not have eaten the honey had they known its source. Let me repeat something from last week. 
Technically, a Nazarite is not to touch a, touch a dead body under any circumstance. He couldn't even prepare and or bury his own parents if they passed. However, tradition had developed that in general, a Nazarite was not to contact any dead thing, including an animal. Apparently they drew the line at unclean animals, otherwise sacrificing and eating meat would have been a little difficult. And there's no record of a Nasir requirement to become a vegetarian. Or that the sacrificial requirements were held in abeyance for them during their vow period. Still, it's unimaginable that Samson's parents would have eaten honey taken from the corpse of a dead animal, a dead unclean animal, like a lion. This shows once again how Samson paid little attention to the laws of Moses or even Hebrew traditions if it didn't suit him. He really didn't care too much about the feelings and concerns of others. Or if what he did negatively affected them. This apparently included his feelings towards his own parents. And in verse 10, we're told that the marriage ceremony began as Samson's father went down to greet Samson's bride-to-be. Now, no doubt this situation was cordial. There's no hint that there was a tense situation or even particularly uncomfortable, was it, for either of these two families. In many ways, this is just another subtle picture of how familiar and at ease God's people had become with God's enemies. And it helps us to understand why Yehovah was going to do something about this ridiculous state of coziness between the two sides that ought not to exist. Now we're told that a banquet was served. And that this was the way that young men used to go about a marriage ceremony during this time. The young men are referring to Philistine young men. This banquet was a Philistine tradition, not a Hebrew tradition. Since Samson was in Philistia, marrying a Philistine girl, there apparently weren't any of Samson's Israelite buddies with him, if he had any. So, out of hospitality, the bride's family provided 30 Philistine men as companions for the groom. Now, I suspect that Samson had at least some familiarity with several of these men, and especially the best man. Apparently, a Philistine wedding ceremony was much like a modern Western bachelor's party. I wonder how the bride felt about, felt about that. Only this party was a seven-day-long affair. Well, as you can imagine, without a TV or a DJ, a seven-day-long anything can get a little boring. So some kind of entertainment was called for. And since the nearest city from Timna of any size was Ashkelon, it's not feasible that the guests would travel back and forth to the feast from their homes each day. Rather, the wedding guests would have stayed there the whole time. And in those days, and for hundreds of years into the future, a favorite party activity was the telling of riddles. And along with the riddles came co drinking copious amounts of alcohol. Now, there is no statement here that Samson drank. 
But if he hadn't, it would have been a serious breach of hospitality and protocol. Plus, strictly speaking, a Nazarite was only supposed to stay away from grape-based alcohol, even though tradition had made it all alcohol. And many kinds of alcohol were, are made from grain. In any case, there are a few scholars, but the majority of rabbis, who try to make the case that Samson avoided the alcohol at the party. It would have gone against everything we're told about his character to think he didn't nip a little bit. Well, the bridegroom does his duty to entertain the folks, and so he offers them a riddle. And to go along with this riddle, he offers a wager. If the 30 male guests can decipher the answer, Samson promises to buy them 30 linen shirts and 30 changes of good clothing. One linen shirt, one set of good clothing for each of the participants. And varying Bible versions offer different translation about this clothing, but the, the Hebrew helps to explain it a little better. Okay. The so-called shirts are in Hebrew, sedinim. sedinim. And these are rectangular pieces of fine linen that, that are often used as soft undergarments. You can imagine how itchy and scratchy most outer clothing must have been back then. The changes of good clothing in Hebrew is halifa, and it means a festive garment. Kind of what we might call our Sunday best, reserved for special occasions. The point is that these were expensive garments that were being wagered. So Samson was really sticking his neck out. If he lost fair and square one wonders where he would have acquired the funds for so many of these costly garments. Naturally, part of the bargain was that if the 30 men couldn't get the answer to the riddle by the end of the seven-day marriage feast, then they each owed Samson a sedin and a halifa. Samson was not planning on losing because, in reality, the riddle was not a fair one. But his guests accepted the challenge and the die was cast. Out of the eater came food. Out of the strong came sweetness. That was the riddle to be solved. This, of course, is referring to the lion that Samson had killed and then the honey that the bees formed inside of it. But who could ever guess such a thing? This is nothing that logic or deductive reasoning or cleverness could ever penetrate. One had to be there at the lion incident to have any idea what Samson was talking about. Solving such a so-called riddle was impossible. Here again is Samson's character flaws showing themselves. He has organized a sucker bet at his own wedding. And he's going to take advantage of his guests. Not very nice. But of course... This is more or less what the Lord God had planned all along as a means to stoke the fires of unrest between the Philistines and the Israelites. Now verse 14 tells us that after three days of all 30 men working together furiously to try to solve this unsolvable riddle they knew they'd been had. 
Yet apparently they continued to try various methods to find the answer. Unsuccessful? They were beginning to realize that not only had Samson made a fool out of them, but they were going to leave that wedding feast a little poorer than when they had arrived. This infuriated them. So they confronted Samson's bride and demanded that she pry that solution out of her husband. Now there's a little problem with the timing here, and we're not going to go into if you talks about the third day and the seventh day and all this. We're not going to go into depth here to solve it because it would take, frankly, probably 20 minutes to thoroughly deal with it. So I'm just going to summarize. Notice that it says that after three days they had not guessed the answer to the riddle, but then on the seventh day they went to Samson's bride. Next we see Samson's bride ask. Samson refuses and then gives in because it says she had cried for the entire seven days of the banquet. So we have some timing conflicts here. We know, for instance, that it was sometime after the third day of the seven-day feast that the 30 men approached the bride, yet it says she cried for all seven, presumably to get Samson to finally tell her the answer. Then we're told that before seven days ended, they appropriated the solution from the bride and gave it to Samson. This, this just doesn't work real well. Here's the thing. This problem can be solved if one understands that we probably have a contextual mixing of the same term meaning two different things. The term in question is seven days. See, seven days was the length of the wedding feast, but we have no idea what what day of the week it began. Seven days is also how long the girl cried. But seventh day is also a common biblical term meaning the Sabbath, Shabbat, and the final day of the week. Thus, very likely, it was not on the seventh day of the wedding banquet, the seventh and last day, that the men came to the girl to convince her to help them solve the riddle. Rather, it was referring to the seventh day of a standard week. It was referring to the Sabbath. So I'll let you take it from there for time's sake. In any case, Samson didn't want to tell the girl, at least partly because he undoubtedly felt she might divulge the answer. After all, despite the fact that they were in a marriage process, her family were Philistines, her culture were Philistines, and all of her friends were Philistines. The pressure would have been too much for her not to help out those who she'd been closest to all of her life. Yet, and for some good reason, well, Samson says he didn't even tell his parents about this. And the reason was that Samson had given him that honey and he didn't want him to know where he got it. Because they'd have been pretty furious if they ever found out. And you know what else? They'd have to go through a long and costly process of ritual purification. And the mere thought of what they had just ingested would have turned their stomachs. But this also proved to be, this whole thing, for the, a very important tool for the Lord to use his determination to undermine the peace process between the Philistines and the Israelites. 
Samson's bride's tears finally had their desired effect. And Samson told her the answer to the riddle. Men, I think we can all identify with this. When my wife cries for even a few minutes, I'm ready to do anything to stop the flow of tears. Men have no idea. I'm telling you women, ladies, we have no idea what to do with a crying woman. Absolutely none. All right. And I'm pretty sure you're born knowing that too. But whatever. <clears throat> now, my wife has never cried for a whole day, let alone for seven. So I think we can cut Samson a little slack here for finally giving in. Well, unfortunately, the girl instantly went to the 30 men and told them the riddle's solution. Just moments before the end of the seventh day of the feast, that's the idea in verse 18 when it says, before sundown on the seventh day, when the time would have ended for the men to declare their answer or, oh, Samson, all that clothing, they went, went to him and gave him the answer to the riddle. Now, Samson may have been an incorrigible, but he was no dummy. He knew immediately that his wife had betrayed him. Thus he told the men in kind of a riddle form back at him that he knew what they did. After all, only he and his bride knew the answer to this riddle. Thus the words, if you hadn't plowed with my young cow, you wouldn't have solved my riddle now. Now let me detour momentarily. All throughout this story, at least since the beginning of the banquet, this girl has been called Samson's wife. But that isn't exactly correct. The Hebrew term that's being translated, usually to wife, is ishisha. And it can mean girl, woman, or wife. The meaning is derived from the context. The problem in this story is that the whole wedding process was interrupted before the end of the seventh day. But more important, this rift between Samson and his bride seems to have happened before they had sexually consummated their marriage. This is key. Because by Hebrew standards, this consummation is the act of marriage. No consummation, no marriage. Thus, the ancient Hebrew marriage ceremony consisted of a gathering of friends and family, a very brief ceremony officiated by the parents, and then everyone watched as the couple went into their home to consummate their union. That's a little creepy. <laughs> now I've told you the story of the marriage cloth. The marriage cloth that was used as proof of the consummation. You can go back and get a detailed explanation uh, from earlier Torah lessons. But the idea was that this cloth was then given to the mother of the bride for safekeeping because in effect, this was the equivalent of a signed marriage certificate. The point is this. By everything in the scriptures, 
There was no consummation of this marriage. Thus, Samson and his bride were never officially married. Thus, to translate the term Isha as, a, as wife, as we commonly find it, is a misnomer. So why do we do it this way? The answer is that the rabbis, especially those who helped to create the Greek Septuagint, who was, which was created, by the way, a couple hundred years before the Dead Sea Scrolls were created, wanted to make Samson out as a great and near-perfect man rather than the seriously flawed guy that he was. Thus they concocted all kinds of fanciful and unsubstantiated excuses and scenarios that changed the plain meaning of the holy texts. For instance, they claimed that before Samson married this girl, oh, this is a good one, she converted to Judaism. Yeah. Okay. Then they claimed that Samson and this girl were legally married in correct Torah fa- fashion, thus this girl was his wife. We find nothing about that in the texts. Okay. The next chapter will bring up this issue more in detail and we'll examine it a little more carefully then. Well, Samson was beside himself in anger. His betrothed had just betrayed him and just as bad, he now had to come up with 30 sets of clothing for his guests as their prize for solving the riddle. Well, rather than just tell the men that their method of getting the answer negated what he owed them, he determined he was going to meet his obligation. I suspect that had he argued against this, his own guilt in forming a riddle that was unfair in the first place, and only he, knowing the answer, would have been all the more apparent. So, boiling with rage, he goes to Ashkelon. And Ashkelon, you see here on the map, this is about a 20-mile journey from where he was at Timna, which also tells you why those men weren't traveling back and doing a 40-mile round trip on foot every day to go to this wedding. And he went down there and proceeded to kill... 30 male citizens of Ashkelon in order to take their clothes away from him and give them to his wedding guests. Understand, these men he killed had no connection to this wedding. By all accounts, these were random killings. But undoubtedly, Samson picked men who possessed that special kind of clothing that he needed. He took the clothes and he gave them to the men he owed them to and then he went to his father's house in Sorah, his home in Judah. Now back in Timnah, his wife and her family were waiting for Samson to return. But he didn't. What a terrible insult to her family. And what a dilemma they now faced. Was this girl married to Samson or not? Would Samson return and complete the marriage process that was interrupted? Or was this girl to remain in limbo? Well, after some time passed, we don't know how long, days, weeks, maybe months, the girl's father gave her in marriage to Samson's former best man. Wow, what a mess. Well, let's end today by backing up a couple of verses to verse 19. 
Verse 19 states that the spirit of Jehovah came over Samson as he went to Ashkelon with murder on his mind. And the Ruach gave Samson a burst of supernatural strength that allowed him to go through the city. Now picture this. Here's this madman going through the city killing these random Philistine men in order to take their clothes from them. And this reminds us that the Lord God was behind all of this. Yes, Samson's own evil inclinations made him this impetuous bully. All right, with anger management issues, by the way. All right. But the Lord unapologetically used that for his purposes. Samson's rash decision to marry that Philistine girl, the girl's decision to betray her fiancé to the 30 wedding guests, then her father's decision to give her to another man after Samson took off, now my reconciliation of this whole situation impossible. Samson's war against the Philistines was about to begin in earnest. And by the way, the rabbis handle all this and what's about to come by explaining that Samson's so-called wife now gave up her Judaism and returned to the religion of the Philistines. We'll start chapter 15 next week.